So yeah, tonight we'll be going through our series in Esther, and we're and we're going through the Old Testament. Um, and and one thing I I just been thinking a lot about about as I'm preparing these messages in Esther is that it's been um it's been it's been hard to kind of take Esther little bits and pieces and, and teach that to you guys because Esther is supposed to be is meant to be read as a whole story. Stories will be meant, meant to be read from beginning to end and to draw the actual true application why the author wrote this. You have to kind of read the entire story. And what we've been doing is we've been preaching through it um, section by section, scene by scene, character by character. And we're digging deep into these characters. We're digging deep into each one of these scenes to understand the context, to understand what's, why is the author writing the story this way. But because we're doing that, um, there's there's been it's been difficult personally for me sometimes just to think about how do I then draw application of that because the true application is really the entire story. Um, and I've been trying to dig deep and trying to figure that out. Um, and so, one thing I, I I wish that I'm praying that that these that this message that these series through this Old Testament narrative would do for you guys is to teach you guys how to read the Old Testament. Did you guys have to study the Old Testament? Because these Old Testament stories, we know a bunch of them. We know stories of Abraham. We know stories of David. We know stories of Jonah. But all these stories have all these little nuances in their characters. These little things that, that depend on context. Things that we, if we just take the time to read and put ourselves in their shoes, we can see clearly with our own eyes. And so one thing that I, I pray I think the series would do for us is for us to slow down as we read these stories. To take little bits and pieces of every single part of God's Word. Why is author writing this here? What is the purpose of putting this description here? How does that play out in the entire story? So that we can read and study for the, the Bible on our own and take home God's Word for us to, to really dwell upon it, to eat upon it every single day because God's Word is our daily bread. And so I, I hope that this series will do that for you, and I, and I hope that I hope that as we're going through this series, that as we're preaching to you guys, we're also showing, demonstrating to you guys how to read through some of these Old Testament narratives. Uh, with that, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get into our message. Pray with me, Father. I thank you for everyone here. I thank you, God. Now, we're, we're gathered here together in your name. And Lord, I pray, Father, that we would then now gather around your word. And that, Father, your word will be read, your word will be studied, and your word will be preached. And Lord, may we be so grateful and so thankful to have your word before us. To know, Lord, of how you've worked throughout history, throughout since the beginning of time. How you've been faithful and consistent. And how you've been good to your people. So Lord, I pray, Father, that your spirit then will inspire your text upon our hearts tonight. That Lord, we will see the truths that's laid in there. And that Father, we will take home those truths and apply it to our lives. Lord God, I pray for your spirit to move. I pray for your spirit to preach. And I pray, Lord... Your word will be our truth that we hold on to. Thank you, Lord, for all this. Thank you, Lord, for everyone here. I pray all this in your 
most precious name. Amen. Amen. So I've been using movie titles as my sermon titles. And tonight, I pretty much did the same thing. So tonight, we have Miss Congeniality. It's an old movie. I don't know if everyone knows it. I watched it a long time ago. I barely remember the scenes. I kind of remember what the story's about. Um, but if you haven't seen it, uh, it's it's pretty much just a movie, I believe, involving some kind of FBI that's going through some kind of beauty contest um, because there's some kind of secret mission around that. I don't remember exactly. That's kind of a really brief synopsis. But I'm going to use this movie title um, because tonight we are finally going to be introduced to Esther. We are finally going to see Esther and we're going, to, we're going to view the heroine whom this book is named after. So tonight we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now, there's a lot of text here. So I'm not going to be reading every single sentence. I'm going to try to summarize parts that I don't think we need to really dig deep into. But I encourage you guys to read the entire passage when you guys have time. Because it's good. Um, but I, I'm going to pick and choose little bits and pieces that I feel like we should focus in on. That will help us develop our understanding of who Esther is. When, now that we're finally going to meet her. So... The first thing we're going to see from verses 1 through 4 is about the king. About King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus. And here, at the beginning of chapter 2, it says in verse 1, that after these things, when the, king, when the anger of, the king, of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she has done, and what's decreed against her. So this entire time, we've been looking at this king. The entire chapter 1, we've been looking at this king. And this king has pretty much been playing the role of God. Right? God hasn't been mentioned at all. God actually never mentioned at all in the book of Esther. And in God's place, this king has been playing this role of God. Let me demonstrate this for you. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, we see here the king wants to show the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness. Here, the word glory there, that king wants to display his glory. And that glory is the same word glory that we ascribe to God in his kingdom, God in his holiness, God in his throne. And we see that word being used, for example, in Psalm 29.2 and Psalm 145.11 and Isaiah 6.3 and Isaiah 6.3 we know it says that the entire world is filled with God's glory that same word for glory and here this king showing off his glory his splendor words that should be attributed to God himself then in verse 12 of chapter 1 here, Queen Vashti, as we've just seen through the skit, Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's presence, refused the king's command. And at the second half of verse 12, it says this, At this, at Queen Vashti's refusal, 
the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. The king here was angry. The king here was angry, angry because of disobedience, because of disobedience of his queen. His queen said no. Gave, him, gave her command, the queen and all her sass said no. And the king became angry. Now this word anger here, this word anger is typically used to describe God's anger when Israel disobeys God. When Israel disobeys God, God, anger burns within him. And he becomes enraged. We see that very clearly in Isaiah 42, 25, where, where Isaiah is talking about the rebellious nature of, of the people, of the Jewish people of Israel. And it says that God's anger has been kindling for years and years and years. It's been storing up wrath against them. And here in Esther, this king is the one who gets angry. This king is the one who reacts when someone disobeys against him. And now in our passage, chapter 2, verse 1, we see here, after all these things, it says the anger of King Ahasuerus has abated, meaning it's dissipated, it's gone, it's diminished. He remembered Vashti. And that word remember is the same word that God uses, that Scripture uses when it describes God remembering His promises to His people. When God remembers his covenant to his people. In Genesis 9.15, it talks about the covenant of Noah and how God remembers his covenant there that he will not flood the earth. Exodus chapter 2, it says that God remembers the promises he made to the patriarchs to save Israel from the land of Egypt. And so, what does word remember connotates? What this word remember connotates here, it means that there is not just a memory, but there's a memory with a deep emotion involved. A memory that invokes, invokes some, kind of, some kind of sympathy, maybe some kind of regret, maybe some kind of sadness, happiness. There's, there's, there's an emotional, emotional um, action, event happening when someone is remembering in this way. And here the king remembers Vashti, what she has done, what was decreed against her. We don't know exactly what emotion is being invoked in the king as he remembers this, but because it says that the anger of the king has abated, has decreased, has diminished, we can we can assume that the emotion that he's remembering Vashti has is the opposite of that. Maybe there's a regret that Vashti is not around anymore. A regret that the most beautiful woman of the kingdom is not his queen anymore. Because remember, it wasn't his plan to banish her. It was the wise man. He just simply thought it was a good plan because he was angry at that time. He followed through. And so the king remembered, and we see all this. 
And what's happening here in verse one is that it's actually been about three years since the banishment of Queen Vashti. It's actually been about three years, and within those three years, King Ahasuerus actually launched an attack against Greece. Launched an attack against Greece. Remember, he was throwing parties, hoping to get everyone aside, including the army generals, to show them that they have power; they can go against Greece. And he launched an attack against Greece, and they waged war against them. And King Ahasuerus was actually pretty close to defeating the people in Greece until the, until everyone in Greece gathered in Athens and launched one last attack against Persia, and they won, and Persia retreated, and King Ahasuerus retreated back to his back to his castle. Ashamed, dishonored, feeling like a failure. And history book says that as a result of that defeat, all the king ended up doing, all he ended up doing was just simply throw parties because that seems to be the only thing he's good at doing. And he continued to throw parties and he entertained woman after woman after woman. And it could possibly be that after entertaining all these women, no one has matched up to who Vashti was. And here he remembers her. So this is after three years. Three years of this. But this king is still pretty much the same king. As much power that he has, as much authority that he has, he still can't seem to make up his own mind. He still can't seem to make up his own decision. Everyone here... Everyone here wants to please the king. Right? Throughout chapter 1, we see people trying to be in the presence of the king. Everyone except for Vashti wants to be in the presence of the king. Everyone's trying to please him. And, and they know that he has the power that whatever he says goes. Again, this king is kind of acting in a way, acting in the place of God in the story. Whatever he says goes. And so everyone's trying to please him. And in verse 2, we see here that the king's young men, so these are different from the wise men that we saw in chapter 1. The king's young men who attended him, who was in his presence, comes up with a plan. This is not the king's original plan. This king has no creativity, has no originality. This king can't make any decisions of his own. We don't know if he can even cook eggs. We just... All we, can, all we can know is that people plan his every single day, his every single thing, his, all his meals probably. Who knows? And here the king's young man says, verse 2, Let all the beautiful virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers and all the provinces in the king to gather up all the beautiful young virgins to the harem of Susa and Citadel. Um, and it moves on. And it says later on that whichever young woman, verse 4, let all the young women who please the king be the queen instead of Vashti. In other words, we're, let's look out. If you miss Vashti that much, just go look for her replacement. And it says at the end of verse 4 that this pleased the king, and he did so. So, first, we see that the king doesn't know how to make any decisions. He continues to have other people pretty much run the kingdom through him. He's just a puppet. 
But secondly, we see that when the king does make a decision, he makes it based off his emotions. It's whenever it pleases him, then he says he does it. He doesn't do anything until a plan pleases him. Everything is very emotion-based here. And and here, here they say, let's, let's go look for beautiful young virgins. So those are three requirements to fulfill the queen's Vashti spot. Beautiful, young, and a virgin. Nothing here about her character. Nothing here about her submissiveness, her obedience to the kingdom. I mean, it's almost, they're really replacing Vashti. What if happens if this same woman ends up disobeying the king again? The whole thing is going to happen again. Again, these men aren't very wise. They, they, they seem to be just repeating the same mistakes. And yet here, that is a plan. That's what's happening. And the king because it pleased him, he says, let's go ahead and do it. And here, at this point, it's as if, it's as if the title scene has just appeared, and Esther is now dying away, and now we're getting in view, we're being introduced to the main character, Esther. Verse 5. Verse 5 to 7, we get introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther. First, first person we get introduced is a man named Mordecai. Verse 5, it says that now there is a Jew in Susa, the citadel whose name was, um, whose name was, there is a Jew named Mordecai, who is the son of Jared, who is the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who was carried away from Jerusalem upon the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Galilee, has to carry away. So here we see Mordecai, the Jew. And we have to note the word Jew here. Right? There, there's a reason why the author specifically says that there is a Jew in this city. Because so far we've only seen what the Persians have done. And the author wants to point out that this character that we're introducing is different. This person that we're introducing does not, is, does not come from the Persian kingdom. This is a foreigner. This is someone of a different origin. We're introducing someone different, and you want to be paying attention to this person. Then we see, then we see that this Mordecai, he's an exiled Jew. The word exile has been used three times in these two verses. So the author really wants to emphasize this. Really wants to emphasize that this is an exiled Jew. This Jew, meaning this this person, these Jewish people, are not, they're not in their homeland. They're in a different land. Let me, let me refresh your memories a little bit. This is the map of the kingdom of Persia. The map of the kingdom of Persia. And right now the story is being located right here, in the capital right here in Susha. Jerusalem and Israel is over here. If you notice, Jerusalem is also within the green area. Meaning that Jerusalem is still technically underneath Persian control. Still underneath Persian captivity. And so when 
when King Cyrus made the decree to release all the exiles back to their homelands, it's really back to their homelands that are still controlled by the Persian Empire. But they're allowed to go back home. But they're still underneath Persian control. And so, really the, the, the exiles, the people taken captive, they had, they had a choice. Either they remain underneath the control of the Persian Empire in the foreign land, in a foreign city, or they remain underneath the control of the Persian Empire back in their hometown. Those are their two choices. But they're always still underneath the kingdom of Persia. And while, if you guys remember, the decree happened, some Jews did go back to Jerusalem, but others stayed. Others stayed in the land. Jerusalem back then was torn down. It was broken apart. There was... It was really considered the backwater lands of the Persian kingdom. It's like, it's like telling someone to move from California to, I don't know, South Dakota. And there's like nothing there. Just, you can't compare. It's not the same. And so, and so some Jews stayed. They stayed in the capital because in the capital, there's opportunities there's opportunities to, to gain a job, to gain wealth, to gain status. Instead of going back to a land where there's seemingly no hope for any of that. And so some Jews stayed, actually many Jews stayed. And Mordecai, Mordecai was one of those Jews who stayed. He wasn't there, not necessarily he stayed, but his, his generations before him, his father stayed. And therefore he grew up than in the Persian Empire, and he never knew another land. But he was definitely a Jew. And his forefathers, his forefathers, Shimei, Kish, they chose to stay, and he, and he stuck around. He grew up in the Persian Empire. Then in verse 7, in verse 7, we get introduced to Mordecai's cousin. Verse 7 says that he was bringing up Hadashah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. Now Mordecai here took Esther and we, we meet Esther for the first time. Esther here is her Persian name. Hadassah is actually her Jewish name. So this here is her Jewish name. Esther's a Persian name. And what that, what that demonstrates is that Esther has, there's a dual identity going on in Esther's life. Esther could be Jewish ethnically, but she still relates culturally to the Persian Empire. She has a Persian name. This is in many ways similar to, similar to many of us, perhaps. For instance, I have a Chinese name, and though I don't like to use it, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I try to hide my Chinese identity, even though I can't. Um, I that's that's just pretty much what that's pretty much what this is like here. Right? You have multiple names, and maybe at home you're you're being called by your Chinese name, but outside of your home, you're being called by your English name. And there's a dual identity going on. 
here Esther has a Jewish name. She also has a Persian name. And the fact the Jewish name actually never shows up again in Scripture. The Persian name states. In many ways, this shows that this shows that Esther wanted to keep her Persian identity dominant. That she wanted to relate to the Persians. That this is the name that she wanted to go by. And she didn't want people to, to really call her by her Jewish name. Now, why is that? Well, you see, even though there wasn't necessarily racism during that time, it wasn't like the Jews were being necessarily strongly persecuted or hated against. The fact that you're still a foreigner makes you a foreigner, makes you different. And naturally, people don't accept different. When someone comes in and they're different from kind of the culture of a group, it's, it's harder for, to bring them in. It takes a lot more sacrifice. It takes a lot more boundary crossing. It takes a lot more crossing over cultural context to understand them and to bring them in, for them to understand the group and to come in and join in. And so it, there's, there's this natural difference. A natural difference in, in relating between Persian and Jewish people. And so, in many ways, we can kind of understand this. We can understand why Esther wanted to be known by her Persian name, to be known as a Persian person, because she's grown up. She's growing up in this Persian empire. And she doesn't want to be treated differently. She wants to be treated just like one of them. And in many ways, we can do the same thing growing up here, being American, but yet come from a different ethnicity. And we all claim that we all want to be more American than we are sometimes in our ethnicity. I don't know, maybe some of you guys like being Asian more. I know personally growing up, I prefer to be known more as American. I remember going to a white middle school, actually majority white, and they're all different for me, and I was coming from a public school where there's a lot more ethnicity there, and I was going to and I transferred over to a private school, middle school, and and I know that in order to fit in, I just, just pretty much had to like revamp my identity. Started listening to her music, started getting into all these emo rock, started getting into all these different things. Um, I don't know why we got to Eminem, even though he is white, but not really. I don't know. Um, it's, but there's like all, I mean, I remember just, just wanting to hang out with them, wanting to do things that they do, wanting to just fit in. But yet, as much as I try to hang out with them, they always still cast me aside as that Chinese boy in the class. And it was a small class. A class of like maybe 13 people. It was a private school. And, and I, I, didn't, I didn't want to deal with that. I didn't. So I, I tried to refuse to speak Chinese in front of them and try to refuse just to be Asian in front of them. Esther here could possibly, even Mordecai, could possibly be doing the same thing. Where their identities, even though that is who they are, when they go out of their homes, when they walk out their front door, 
they are still, in a way, hiding, trying to fit in culturally to the Persians. But there's a bigger, there's a bigger question here in this text, more than just your, more than just your ethnic identity. Because being Jewish is not just about your ethnicity. Being Jewish means that you are God's people. And there's a question here that we must be asking. Is that how much of your own commitment to God, how much can you truly compromise that that identity, that commitment to God, while you're assimilating to your current cultural context? How much here can Esther truly give up as she's assimilating to the Persian culture? Because it's not just her ethnic identity. There's a theological identity being involved here. Because the Jewish people were God's people. And that is a question that we will look at that we must be asking ourselves as we continue to read through this narrative. Now we see here that Esther was beautiful. Esther was beautiful, and this phrase, this description of her beauty, was has been used since we've seen Vashti. And so we know her beauty matches up to Vashti. And she's beautiful to look at, and she has, a, based off her natural looks alone, she had a great chance of winning this contest. And so here, now Esther enters the contest. And as Esther enters the contest, enters the contest, um, she is there with a lot of other younger women. And we look here at verse nine. Here we see a eunuch, Hegai, who's in charge of all these women, who's in charge of bringing them in to the king's palace. And in verse nine, it says that Esther. Esther, the young woman Esther, pleased him, Haggai, and won his favor. Esther went into this contest, and not just off her good looks alone did she win his favor, but she actually took steps. She took action. She actually really wanted this. She really wanted to win this. Because here we see... The, that word won his favor, this word here, in the Hebrew context, in the Hebrew tense, it's a, it's a very active verb. It's not passive, meaning she's doing some action. She's doing something to win his favor. There's, there's action being done by part. You don't know exactly what she's doing, but we know that she is doing something. And so that demonstrates her eagerness to win. Now, one question pertaining around this whole scene right now is, are these women here being gathered against the will, or do they actually really want to enter this contest? Because if this happened nowadays, I mean, there will be an outrage, right? So what's going on here? So even though we have seen that the king, indeed, is rich beyond rich, this king has just crazy amount of money, and can throw parties like none other. It doesn't. The rest of the kingdom still live a very harsh life. The rest of the kingdom still live 
in a broken life, maybe a poor life. And so this here becomes a chance for a young woman to enter into the palace, to enter into the palace and to enter into luxury. Because to have that spot, to win the king's favor, means you can live your life now in wealth and luxury. And that's something they wanted. That's something they were striving for. Now, it's not saying all the women here was doing it. Some of them might have been done against their will. Um, it is not clear in the text. But we do know from historical context that that being able to win this position, being able to bring, be brought into the king's palace, means that you will indeed become go from poor to becoming rich. And that might have been the motivation for Esther. Because we see here Esther didn't go against her will. Esther actually took steps to win the favor of Haggai. And what Haggai was doing during that time, Haggai was gathering all the young women and pretty much taking the time to beautify them. Taking the time to beautify them and to bring them in to the king's presence. And Haggai will take, Haggai will pretty much give all these women cosmetics give all these women maids, give all these women rooms to sleep in, and they would spend an entire year just pretty much preparing themselves to come before the presence of the king. And Haggai here, because, because Esther won his favor, verse 9 says that he provided her pretty much the best cosmetics, the best food, the best maids, the best rooms, and advanced her up quickly. So, what exactly are these women doing for 12 years? Or, sorry, 12 months. What are they doing for one whole year to beautify themselves? <clears throat> They're pretty much just putting on different perfumes, putting on different things. Sometimes they will just, sometimes they'll soak themselves in these perfumes with their clothes in order for that to be just pretty much that smell to be enriched into them, into their skins, into their clothing. So that when they come before the presence of the king, they, their fragrance will entice the king. That's, that's some historical context of some things they did. There, there, there could be plenty of other stuff that's happening at the same time. All we know that is, all we do know is that this is taking, this is taking a whole year. So by the time Esther actually comes before the presence of the king, it's been four years since Queen Vashti and that event has happened. And when, and when the woman has been brought in front of the king, verse 14 says this. It says that in the evening, the young woman will go into the king's room, and in the morning, she'll return. And she'll go into the second harem. Really, it's just a second location in the palace. And this second location is under the Cassidy of Shaskas, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the concubines. In other words, it's king... After a one-night stand with the king, and thankfully, Scripture does not provide details of what happens behind those closed doors. We can safely assume that sexual activities happen, but we don't get the details of it. And that's, that's okay. We don't need to know the details. But after this one-night stand, pretty much the young woman was taken away and treated as a concubine. Now, the king's concubine at that time, the king's concubine at that time were just pretty much women that he has pretty much went after. That 
that he fancied after and and perhaps had a one night stand and afterwards she just pretty much just cast him off gave him a room gave him clothes gave him food and they just stayed there for the rest of their lives now it was, it was a nice life they lived in luxury but it was a very pointless life as well because all they did was just was just stayed in King's palace and it says here that these concubines will not go back to the king again unless the king delighted in her and was summoned by name. And there are so many of these concubines, you must have stand out a lot in order for the king to remember your name. <clears throat> and so if the king did not delight in you, you will end up becoming just another woman in the palace living luxuriously, but living very pointlessly. I don't know about you, but that's not a type of life that I will wish upon any of the women here. But that is how, that's what the case is like here. And maybe for some of these women, that is what they wanted because that way they can live richly. They can live in comfort without having to worry who will set food upon their table. But their life will end up being pointless. But Esther here, Esther here stands apart from all these people. Esther stands apart from all these people because Esther was very ambitious. Remember, Esther won Haggai's favor. And so Esther then would asked Haggai for advice, and, and Haggai gladly gave her advice. And as she got her advice, she obeyed to a T to that advice. And as a result, in verse 17, we see that the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Here the author is pointing, pointing to a direct contrast between Esther and Vashti. Because Ash, Vashti was being called out to wear this crown on her head to be shown before all the men at the party. She refused. Esther now wears the crown. She won the favor of the king because she obeyed. And she pleased him. And so what we see here, what we see here is that Esther is completely different from Vashti. She's compliant. She is obedient. She assimilates with the culture. She wants to be with the culture. She doesn't want to be disobedient. She doesn't want to look different. She wants to fit right in. So she conforms herself culture. She obeys everyone. She doesn't step out of bounds. She listens. And she follows instructions. And as a result of all this, she becomes queen and the king becomes happy because in verse 18 it says the king gave a great feast. Seems like that's all he knows how to do. He gave a great feast to all his officials and servants. And more than that, 
He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal gen- generosity. When the king is merry, when his heart is merry, everyone else benefits. It's amazing to see the king's reaction here compared to where he was in the beginning of chapter 2. And so here we have Esther. As you can see right now, Esther is no role model. She is no role model for any of the girls here. Right? And we, we tend to think of Esther as, as a heroine that we should, be, we should be following after. I'm actually more of a camp that Esther is a better just representative of how we're like. Because we see here, Esther simply conforms to everything. She obeys everything. She even, most likely, acted immorally throughout all this. How then, what then, is going on here? Well, there's still one very key point that we need to bring out here. And we have to look back at verse 10 at that point. Because remember, Esther has a Jewish identity and a Persian identity. And it seems like she just simply followed her Persian identity all the way to the king. Because in verse 10, it says that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai has commanded her not to make it known. In other words, that identity was kept hidden. We don't know. In fact, most likely the king demonstrates zero signs of hatred against the Jews. I don't think the king would have disqualified her because she was a Jew. In fact, the king seemed to show some favor to her when she does reveal she's a Jew later. But the fact is, again, she's still a foreigner. And back then, it was frowned upon for kings to marry a foreigner. Being a foreigner makes you different. And so Esther hid her identity. The point here, the point here is that Esther, what I meant is that Esther must have dressed like a Persian. She must have followed Persian customs. She must have did what the Persians did, talk like them, act like them. But most of all, in order to hide her Jewish identity, in order not to reveal it, she must have also disregarded any Jewish practices and customs. And you have to remember, Jewish practices and customs, Jewish law, was not made by humans. Jewish law was Torah. The first five books of the Bible, written by God. There was absolute authority in those laws. And yet, it seems like she disregarded those laws and those practices. Practices like keeping the Sabbath. Practices like eating specific diets. Practices like giving sacrifice for her sins. 
staying pure and clean. And not marrying a foreigner who's not Jewish. She seemed to ignore all of that. Ignore all of those practices that makes you Jewish. Because if it says that she has not made it known, that means she couldn't have practiced it. She couldn't have followed it. She must have brushed all that stuff to the side. And it seems like she had no problem with that. At this point of the story, at this point of our story through Esther, we must be asking the question, how is Esther going to stand up for the Jews when the time comes? Because here she has shown no loyalty to the Jewish people. What happens when she does reveal her identity? What happens then? Because we have seen that when the king becomes angry, bad things happen. We have seen that when someone disobeys the king, he can act quickly and, sh- and swiftly, and you can be banished from the courts. What happens when her identity becomes revealed? Will she still be compliant to the king and the Persian customs? Or will she stand up for her Jewish identity and for her people? And that's the question we all must be asking as we're introduced to Esther during this time. And we see here the author. The author here is a great storyteller because the author here is creating that tension within the character, within the heroine. Right? All good stories, all good stories out there, all good movies out there, there has to be some kind of tension with the character himself. The character can't be perfect. There has to be tension, something that they have a hard decision they have to make. And we see that here with Esther. Esther, Esther, is, Esther is being shown as someone who simply just goes with the flow. But as a result, that means her Jewish identity has been brushed underneath. What happens when that becomes revealed? What happens when the skeletons come out? But that faces a question for all of us as well. What happens when our identity? What happens with our identity as well? Because as we go on to these college campuses, as you guys are all going to college, you guys are all going to your campuses, you guys are all coming in with a lot of different identities. In this world, all the people here face an identity issue. They face identity crisis. And your campuses are filled with such people who are struggling with their identity. When there's talks out there, people questioning you about your ethnicity, about your culture, about your social identity, about your careers, your gender, your economic stance. There's even identities being found in your personalities. Your hobbies. I mean, think about why there's so many different clubs on campus. Because there's identity involved in those communities. And people have all these different masks they like to put on, all these different identities they like to hold on to, 
all these different things. And the reality is, is that all of us here have all those different identities. I'm not saying those are all any false identities. Those are definitely true identities. You are definitely Asian. Most of you. You are definitely American. Most of you. You all, most of you have grown up in this church. And there's identity there that comes with belonging to SBC Wanan. There's identity that comes from growing up in this area. Whether you're from Wanan, Dianbar, Roland, there is a middle class identity involved with that, that forms your life. There's identity with who you are as a gender, with your relationship status. There's identity involved with your skill sets your hobbies. There's identity involved with all that we've grown up in. And we carry all these different identities. We juggle with all of them. But the problem is is that many times this world wants you to be identified by one single identity. They want you to hold on to it. They want that identity to be powerful. You're trying to seek fulfillment in identity. The real problem, the real problem isn't the fact that we have all these different identities. The real problem is that the core identity as a human being, that identity has been lost. And that identity exists in all of you here today in this room. It's been lost. It's been covered up. And that identity is the image of God that's been created in all of you. image of God exists in every single one of us and that identity has been disfigured, distorted and lost but that is why we need someone like Christ that is why we need someone like Christ because Christ restores that image in all of us Christ restores that image in all of us. When Christ came down to this earth, He carried both His identity as God as well as identity as a man. But He lived out both of them perfectly. He was a perfect man to God and He was God to man. He represented both sides perfectly. He didn't struggle with the two. But because of that, that makes Jesus Christ the perfect mediator for us. Because we all need that. We all need someone to demonstrate what it looks like to have the image of God in us. To live that out perfectly. So that that identity of all of us as human beings can be restored. And it can be restored perfectly through Christ. Because Christ died on the cross for our sins. Wipe that clean. And now He covers us with His grace, with His life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, 
sorry, verse Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. It says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But you see, the light of the gospel is what we need to see. The light of the gospel is what we need to see. And God is the one who will show us that light. He will shine light. Because it says then in verse 5, that for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For Jesus sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, our dark hearts, our deformed hearts, our hearts that has covered up the image of God, Give light to knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus Christ, which is the image of God. We need to know Christ. We need to know Christ, the gospel. Because that shines light to us. And show us the way to have a restored image. A restored identity. And that way, we are now then defined and identified as Christians in Christ. We're defined as Christians in Christ. And meaning that we are no longer a Christian student, but we are Christians who are students. That doesn't mean all your other identities fall away, but it means that you're core identity, your root identity is grounded in Christ. The key point I want to take us take away from this passage is that our identity as Christians is grounded in Christ who frees us from the distorted identities of this world and restores us to the image of God. Remember that Christ has sent us here, has sent us here into this world to be in this world, but not of the world. We are to be of Christ, representing Christ in this world. Let us then not compromise any of that. Let us then continue to point people to this gospel, point people to this Christ. We can show them who their true identity is. We can shine light on their hearts because that is what we all need that is what every single person needs so with that let me go and pray for us Father I thank you Lord for your grace I thank you Lord for Christ who is our light who is our identity and who restores in us the image of God. We thank you, Lord, for all of this. We thank you, God, for giving us a gift of grace. That, Lord, upon the cross, our sins have been nailed there, and we gain righteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you for all this. And God, I pray that, Lord, that that will hold true in our hearts and that when we go out into this world, when we go out onto our campuses, that we will then represent Christ well.
That, Lord, our identity will be found in him and him alone. Now, God, we would then be able to share that and invite others to join us into this restored union with you. Thank you, God, for this gift. I pray all this in your holy and precious name.